G'day again, and welcome to another episode of Everyone Has a Story. It is the podcast that complements the two quarterly lifestyle magazines, Hello Sunshine and In Noosa Magazine. The winter issues of both of those magazines currently on the streets across the Sunshine Coast. And uh, if you would like your brand or your business to be part of Hello Sunshine or In Noosa Magazine, or maybe both of those publications, reach out to our client service managers. Uh, You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Look for Hello Sunshine or In Noosa Magazine. Now to today's episode of Everyone Has a Story. David Williamson is Australia's most successful playwright, celebrating 50 years in the arts with the release of Home Truths, a memoir that's coming out in September of this year. Now David and his wife Kristen were instrumental in launching the Noosa Long Weekend many years ago, now known as Noosa Alive. In this episode of Everyone Has a Story, we talk about David's work, his kids, his grandkids, the Collingwood Football Club and Graham Kennedy. I start by asking David, what makes him happy? Look, it's a standard answer, but it's it's family and friends. Uh, At this stage of my life, um, I've done 50 years of writing. Uh, I got an enormous kick out of my career. Um, the times when I'd go into a theatre and hear and feel an audience responding to something I'd written was a huge buzz. Um, but now I'm more than content to focus my life on friends and family in particular. You and your wife, Kristen, David, started what was called the Noosa Long Weekend many, many years ago because you wanted to create this cultural arts hub here in southeast Queensland. As we head into another event now called uh, Noosa Alive, do you and your wife feel like you've achieved that goal? Look, it's it's a great satisfaction. We weren't the only two. Uh, uh, Brett Dean, Michael Gloucester and uh, Leonie Palmer in particular helped us. Uh, We all got the original 2002 Noosa Long Weekend off the ground by putting in a bit of our own cash and hoping for the best. And it's very satisfying. Um, to see it still flourishing, even though it had to survive COVID. It's, <laughs> with any luck, it's back again better and bigger this year with a very good management team, but we're just background figures now. We, we're just patrons that are wheeled out on uh, ceremonial occasions, so it's all running on without us. Uh, but, um, but yes, when we first came, we thought, what a, what a beautiful place this is, but... If you just sat around and didn't become part of the community, you'd sort of just be a permanent tourist in the town. We had to embed ourselves in the community and do something useful. And we thought uh, this place is such an enticement for good artists to come to, to escape the southern winter, that it could be very fruitful um, to bring good people up here um, uh, and, and start a festival. And so it happened. When did you move to Noosa? Uh, in about, we moved to Noosa, John, in about, um, well, I came up first in 1996 and enticed Kristen to come a few months later. She was a bit dubious. She was a Sydney girl. I'd had enough of big cities, really had enough by that time. Too much noise, too much pollution, uh, too much hassle to go from A to B and find a parking spot at B. Um, um, and I just, we'd been coming up to Noosa since the 70s with our little children at, the, at that stage and just loved the place right from the start. And uh, so I thought 
I'm going to live there. And finally, oh, not finally, but two months later, I convinced Kristen to follow me. She thought I was a bit off my head at that stage. How could anyone leave Sydney? But she, uh, she, she slowly, not so slowly, got to um, see the charms of leading a less stressed life in a very beautiful environment. What's the, the connection between Victorians and specifically Melburnians and Noosa? Well, it's, a, it's an historical uh, connection because back in the 70s, uh, Noosa was still could be described as a little fishing village. It wasn't quite fishing, but it wasn't quite village, but it was certainly slower and uh, uh, less developed than it is now. And it was just regarded as uh, a holiday home place for wealthy gimpy people. Um, they just came down and had their holidays here. They didn't think of it. And Victorian surfers came up originally and saw this these beautiful surf breaks, but they also saw this beautiful environment, this north-facing Laguna Bay, as rare as hen's teeth, the river environment, the national park, which wasn't a national park then, but that um, in, environment, and over the hill, 30 kilometres almost of pristine beaches starting at Sunshine Beach and going down the coast. Unbelievable. For someone used to a, a, a freezing Melbourne winter to come up here and find this and find it relatively unappreciated by the Queensland natives was like, wow, these people are uh, idiots. We're going to take over. And they did. Um, so Melburnians invaded Noosa and there's been a Melburnian influence ever since. That's yeah. uh, why it's called... Um, that's why it's called South Yarra. Um, Hastings Street is called South Yarra by the Sea still. Yeah. And it has got that taste of chic South Yarra. It's like Noosa became a little Melbourne enclave yeah. in the wild west of Queensland. And from a, a foodie's point of view too, it seemed like you could get that same level of excellence when you went out to dine and those same experiences that you got uh, in Melbourne, in South Yarra and Turak, and you know, uh, uh, we're traveling around Melbourne, doesn't it? it the, that food culture also exists here the very the same way that it exists in Melbourne. Yes, well, one of the prime movers of that food culture was Leonie Palmer, our first president of the Noosa Long Weekend, who brought the food and wine aspect to the uh, to the Noosa Long Weekend or the Noosa Alive, as it's now called. So Leonie was a, was a Melbourne theatre nurse, highly skilled theatre nurse, but uh, loved food and loved cooking and came up here and thought, wow. And so she was one of the prime movers that turned Noosa into a, uh, a foodie's paradise, as you say. Um, mind you, in the 70s, when we came up, there was only one so-called chic restaurant and it was called, in, in the mid-70s, Barry's on the Beach, uh, Barry Ritter's uh, restaurant. I think he was a Melburnian too. Yeah. But the highlight on the dis uh, on the on the menu then was coconut prawns, which were um, <laughs> considered exotic. You've been described as Australia's most successful playwright, a national treasure. Do you still write? After fifty years um, of having the very fortunate thing of having my plays. Uh, all staged very well, and audiences still coming in numbers. I thought it's time to go out while I'm still ahead. I don't don't, don't want to be staggering around at 99, wondering why the theatres are only a third full. <laughs> I don't so think that's going to happen. 
but I, I didn't give up the writing because I was induced to write my memoir um, uh, by um, by a, a major publisher. Uh, and um, 160,000 words later, it's about to be published in late September by HarperCollins. Um, uh, so I never want to I never want to write another word again after that effort because the research was immense, um, helped by my meticulous wife's diaries. Um, uh, it was fun, but it was exhausting. So I, I'm I'm giving the written word a, a rest, and I'm reading other people's words at the moment. Was it therapeutic? I know with your memoir, you've got the, the 50th anniversary dinner and you'll be reading from your memoirs. Was going back over your life and, and the work that you've produced, David, was that, was that therapeutic in a way? Was there, was there any surprises that came up a lot, like memories that came up along the way that you went, oh, I'd, I'd actually forgotten about that experience? Well, part of the exercise, John, was rereading all my own plays, some of which I hadn't reread for 40 or, or more years. I think I revealed far more of myself than I should have in... <laughs> <laughs> Some of them were pretty autobiographical. They always had the ring of truth about it because they were truthful. That's what audiences responded to. They knew that um, that uh, that some of this was pretty close to the bone uh, and it was an accurate reflection of how people lived and behaved uh, and worked at the time. So I, I thought, oh, my God, my grandchildren are going to read this and going to ask what type of person was their grandfather? I um I, I had never seen Don's party before, but it's screening on um it's screening on Prime Video along with a, a, a other host of uh, I think the club might be or, or uh, it might be on there as well. You've won a number of AFI awards for best screenplay. Your first being for the film version of your seventy one play Don's Party. Do you recall what that was like preparing that play for filming in nineteen seventy six? Yes, um, it, it it was um, well. I, I was lucky. I had. Bruce Beresford, a fine filmmaker, and Don McAlpine, the best cinematographer I think Australia's ever produced. Um, and they managed to turn a stage play into a fairly fluid film experience um, very skillfully. Um, Bruce explained he always had three layers, something happening in the foreground, the middle ground, and the background. Um, uh, so it was, I, I thought, um, it was very well done, and I was flown up to Sydney to have a, a look at filming halfway through, and that was fascinating. Graham Kennedy was in the cast, and he he was he didn't believe he was a good actor though. He he had an inferiority complex because he came from television and thought he was only a television host. In fact, he was a very fine actor, but very touchy and nervous. And when he saw me on the set. Bruce came over and said, oh, he's, he's so nervous that you're here. You'll have to go back to your hotel in Sydney. So uh, I didn't get to see any filming, but at least I saw the set that they did it on. What else do you remember about Graham Kennedy? I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, um, you know, the, uh, he's an Aussie icon and had been around TV for so long. Uh, or was that meeting the only meeting that you had with, with him? I was very fortunate because I, I grew up as a young teenager in Melbourne um, and what sustained me during the grim years of the HSC and the, all of that horror um, <laughs> was watching in Melbourne tonight. Um, and Graham Kennedy was uh, uh, really an inspiration for me because he was so determined to break the boundaries of what was, uh, what was acceptable. 
in in a Melbourne at that time, which was one of the most conformist cities on earth, I think. And so Graham just broke out of the boundaries. He sent up all the commercials. He was deliberately skirting the boundaries of uh, of what was permissible to say and not say. And um, it was always surprising. And he turned uh, some pretty awful um, um, skits into um, outrageously camped up um, send-ups. I was delighted later in life when he, not only in Don's party, but then he took a starring role in the club and then traveling north. So I had him in three of the four films he actually made, and he was brilliant in all of them. So yes, I did um, get to know him um, uh, quite well. And I, I remember during Travelling North, there was one uh, magic day when on Sunday when they weren't shooting and um, we all went out to the Barrier Reef, uh, when I say all of us, uh, some of the cast. Um, there was Graham, there was Leah McKern, and uh, there was Henry Zepps. Uh, and they are both... All of them, sorry, the three of them are consummate storytellers um, and they would try to outdo each other on the way out uh, with hilarious anecdotes. And it was like um, being in the front seat, <laughs> front row of a, um, a terrific uh, um, stand-up comics uh, yeah. concert or something. Yeah. I imagine. Uh, Leo McKern topped them all in the end when he, just before he went over the, the boat side to see the, uh, the reef, he took out his glass eye and, uh, and and put it next to his gear and said, keep an eye on that. And that... <laughs> At the start, when I asked you what, what gives you the most uh, happiness and joy, I thought you might talk about Collingwood. I know you were on, um, I think you were on ABC Melbourne a couple of weeks, uh, weekends ago, following the Nathan Buckley's sacking his coach of Collingwood. I, I know there's a long history there going back to your dad and your granddad. Like, Grandfather Frederick Williamson was the police sergeant in charge of the Collingwood station, and he had to organise security at the grounds um, uh, during the Collingwood matches at Victoria Park. And um, so he got to know all the players. Uh, and and they, they did need security because when Melbourne played uh, Collingwood or when Fitzroy played Collingwood, it was blood on the streets sort of thing. Uh, Collingwood supporters being solidly working class hated Melbourne because it was the club of the upper class that was, they'd say, they'd shout, kill the toffs. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but he got to know them all. And then my father got to shake hands with the great heroes of the era. And we were indelibly Collingwood from that point on. Mind you, it's led to a life of misery because they never win, uh, or they very rarely win grand finals. Um, when someone said, um, uh, oh, one of the aspirants for the new coaching role, oh, is what's his name, the, um, the old Fremantle coach um, who took his sides to three grand finals and lost them all, they said, well, he's perfect for Collingwood. <laughs> <because> <laughs> that's their tradition. My brother and I saw nine grand finals where they lost in a row. Now, no team wow. can do that. Yeah. Um, it's like tossing nine coins in the air and getting heads all the time. Yeah. Um, something was always a little wrong with the culture of the club. You know, I don't think it's still um, the best. I wrote down this line. I'm not sure whether it's from the play, the club, or whether it was part of the interview uh, that you did with Libby uh, Gore a couple of weekends ago. 
It's a tragic. Uh, it's a tragic history. It's not the hero's journey. It's the hero's descent into hell. Is that from the club? <laughs> no, I, I just thought of that at the time. <laughs> um, I mean, it would have been far easier to be born a Hawthorne supporter, and then you'd get a premiership every second year. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, you, you can pick the wrong club at birth, and uh, and then you're stuck with them. I mentioned earlier with with, with the memoir, you've got an event, uh, the 50th anniversary gala uh, dinner that's happening. I think it's happening at Peppers. Uh, I'll I'll check on that later. But you're reading uh, uh, parts of your memoir. But you've got uh, up for grabs, which is the Queensland premiere of your play. It's sold out, but it's uh, going to be directed by your son uh, Rory. Have you worked together before? Yeah, Rory has acted in my plays. I mean, Rory, both Rory, my son Rory and Felix, are both NIDA graduate actors. They're both fine actors, uh, but Rory has now given up on the arts. He said he, he, he'd had enough and now he's very successfully selling real estate in Noosa. Uh, <laughs> but he wants to keep his hand in, in the theatre, so he's directing probably my most outrageous play, uh, it's only the opening night that sold out, the, the, the Noosa Alive thing. The rest of the season still got seats, so people yeah. can still get in to see it. Um, but uh, he brought his brother up, his older brother, Felix, another fine actor who's still in the profession, um, to play. Very cool. That's <laughs> <laughs> my, my granddaughter arrived. That's fine. I'll show you. There she is. Oh, dear. Scared the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking to John. Will you say hello to John? Hi, John. Hello, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've just got to finish talking to John. Is that all right? Then I'll go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's grandparenting duty today. Yeah, I understand. Um, That's good. Yeah. We've got 14 of them. So it's, uh, wow. when I say family, it, 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 they're not all here, but... Um, we have to we, we, we see them a lot. Now, what was I saying? We, we, talk, we talk about up for grabs and, and how Rory's still keeping his hand in by directing the play. Well, Rory decided to direct my most outrageous play, the one that Madonna starred in in the West End. My only sold-out West End um, play. I've, I've had a few in the West End, but this one was a total sellout. They didn't know who wrote the play, but they knew Madonna was in it. It was being scalped for 500 quid so they could see Madonna on stage. Uh, It's about a very unscrupulous um, art dealer who Madonna played who'll do anything to get her paintings sold at above market price. Um, So um, if you're a solid churchgoer, don't go along to see this play because she does some very dubious things. Um, but it should be fun because Felix has come up to play the villain of the piece and Felix does villains better than anyone else. Um, one of his most memorable roles was uh, the, the, the vicious gangster Phil the Jew in Underbelly, the uh, Channel 9 series. He was a shocker. Uh, so he'll he'll give full horsepower to um, to Manny, who's the villain of the show. David, when your kids came to you and said they wanted to um, act or direct or be involved in the theatre, what was your advice to them? Well, I was a little bit dubious. Um, Kristen, my wife, was delighted because she she loves the thought of the kids being in the arts. I was a bit more practical and um, and thought, well. Um, uh, Earning a living is is a perennial problem for anyone in the arts. I was extremely lucky, uh, but it doesn't happen to everyone in the arts, I can tell you. Uh, 
So I was a bit dubious, but they went ahead. And as I say, Felix is still writing, directing, acting in the industry. Rory is doing very well in that other field of real estate. <laughs> but I guess acting is, is a good background for that one yeah. too. I'm not sure. But I wanted I wanted to know what you said. I have a, I mean, your, your background you're as a successful playwright, I have a 12-year-old who wants to go to film and act and, and that kind of stuff. I think he's got a very good eye for uh you know the photography and um but what do you say to them at that age you, you don't want to discourage them but you, you have to be practical is what you said i think i think uh just a word of realism they're not, not going to listen to it john don't worry they they'll, they'll totally do what they want to do but you could warn them that it's a roller coaster ride um it's up and down for everyone in the arts at, at whatever level it's fantastic one day when the phone rings and you're offered that great role and then you get a year of the phone remaining stubbornly silent and, and, and people in the arts are no different in terms of mental health than the general population when they're in work. But my wife, uh, Kristen, did, was a very good journalist and did a big article on the research that shows that people in the arts can get uh, very down and very depressed when they're not in work. So if you can warn your kids that there'll be times when things are not going well, um, and if you're in the arts, well, that's true of life, but it's more true of the arts. The roller coaster is more severe. Playwright David Williamson was my guest on today's episode of Everyone Has a Story. If you enjoyed the pod, please rate and review the podcast or this particular episode and share the episode about on your social media networks. Until next time, take care.